0: Hi, my name is Heather Trengolo. I created Systemic Renewal and I believe that no one and no situation is ever too far gone. Hi, everyone. This is Heather Chitrangelo. Welcome back to Never Too Far Gone. This is the second part of a two-part series that I've created to share with you the method behind systemic renewal. Systemic renewal is a method that I've been working on through research and through my own experience in a range of sectors over many years for changing collective mindsets and for leading systemic change beginning at the mindset level so that strategic change can actually work. In the last podcast, I shared with you the first two of the methods, which were uh, firstly to work individually to gather data about micro-level experiences. The second method was to work as a community to gather data and problem-solve the meso-level and macro-level experience. The second part, which uh, I'm about to share with you, is... Uh, moving into not just understanding and researching and unpacking the mindset of an organization or a system, uh, its history, how it's formed, where it's become stuck, but beginning to develop methods for renewed narratives to be injected into the system. So the third and fourth methods which I introduce in this podcast Uh, Firstly, to work in a secret place to prepare expressions of truth-telling, lament, apology and renewed narratives. And finally, the work we do at what I call The Stage, which is to work collectively to perform renewed narratives across micro, meso and macro platforms. I hope you enjoy uh, this second part of the introduction to the method of systemic renewal. The third method happens in the green room. The green room is a place of safety where we create and we prepare to perform, we prepare to go on stage. The method that happens in the green room is that we work in this secret place. Now we've worked in community, now we're pulling into a secret place. We have data, we have understanding, we have a strategy, we know what new narrative needs to be platformed, where and when and how. And then we need to pull away into a secret place to work very creatively on how we are going to express this in four ways, through truth telling, through lament, through apology and through sharing renewed narratives of hope. So we pull away and we think about how are we going to communicate this new idea, this new way of thinking and being and how are we going to lead people emotionally to a place where that's desirable? Presenting and demonstrating a change in collective mindset is restorative work and it is artistic work. So I'm going to say that again. What my research has uncovered is that presenting and demonstrating a change in collective thinking is both restorative work and it's artistic work. It's a work of helping people to heal and recover from traumatic experiences, from loss. It's about facilitating lament. It's about assisting truth-telling. But it's also about an artistry of being able to connect with and inspire the emotional pulse of the community in front of us. An example that comes to mind from my own life This is quite an old example now, but I want to share about how I did this uh, in a church once. Because churches are often places where the work that happens and the kind of teaching we experience is is the opposite of of restorative and the very opposite of artistic, right? Uh, When spiritual communities are doing their best work, they are creative, they are bursting with artistry. And they are places of safety where truth can be spoken. When religion's doing its worst, it's actually manifesting in the counter-opposite, controlling and shutting down expression and artistry and individuality and denying truth. So I went to this church years ago to serve and it was dying, as many churches are. And so if this isn't part of your experience or interest, you know, think of a business that's on the brink of closure. It doesn't have any clients. The product isn't interesting to anyone anymore. It's drowning in debt. Its physical facilities are collapsing and everybody on staff has quit. Okay, this is the kind of church that I went to. They have some good people in the room. But it's in a bit of trouble. So after going through those first two modes and methods of really gathering data, understanding the story on the place, understanding the experience of the people in the room, working through my own response to that and starting to work collectively with the right people on what designing an alternative future would look like, uh, I started to get to the stage of presenting to the whole community Uh, where this had taken me. And one of the things that I did one day was just a very, very simple action. So this is just such a a super simple example of how kind of leading change and transition can work by using restorative and artistic approaches. Um, I realized that one of the mindsets that had been happening in this place for a long time, which is very common in a lot of churches, is the mindset that we have to have a paid priest, even though we can't afford a full-time priest at the moment, and the priest will do all the work because the priest is getting paid to do that. And if we get a good one, maybe the place will start to improve. And I had to shift that narrative by being really honest with the people in front of me. And I just said to them one Sunday, first of all, I want to be honest with you about the fact that I don't need this job for the money. I'm not here for the money, the part-time salary I get paid. I could earn in a different job. I could work in a different church or I could work as a lawyer. If I work here, it's because I'm meant to be here. It has to be meaningful. It has to be wanted. It has to be something we all want to do. It's not for the money. So don't think for one second that you need to keep paying me to be here because I need the job. I don't. And if you want to call it a day and just decide that we're done here, you know, that's okay too. Uh, We don't need to keep turning this thing over if we're tired and finished and it's time to move on to other things. If you think there's something we can do here that's still purposeful and meaningful and different, to what anyone else is doing, and you want to do that with me, okay, but it's not about the money. And then I explained that if we were going to change and grow, it was going to be a very sacrificial and uh, hardworking experience, that it would involve a group of people going above and beyond the call of duty to give time and energy to this, Um, that would eat into other things they could be doing with their time. So I was really honest about, we've reached a moment where we need to decide collectively whether that's something we actually want to do. And then I put my diary up um, on the screen and I shared with the community what work I do throughout the week, how my week is structured, um, what it looks like and how my time is broken up. Because one of the things that happens a lot with priests, but also with a lot of senior leaders in general, is there's just not transparency about what you're actually doing half the time. This is especially true in churches. And so, you know, I'm shifting that narrative too. I'm saying, I'm going to be transparent with you. I'm going to be accountable to you for how my time gets used. This is what I do. This is what it involves. Um, This is what my last week looked like. These were all the the activities that I did in a week. Here's a breakdown of my schedule and uh, of my time usage. And I showed the people in front of me that if I was going to help this community to grow, I would need to run programs and new initiatives that would go above and beyond the time commitment that I had for my paid hours. And I, I shared with them that I was prepared to do that because that's my commitment is bigger than my paycheck but that I wasn't prepared to do it on my own and so I said honestly for the next couple of years I'm going to need a team of people that are giving evenings and extra hours to to time here and I will do that as well and here's what it will look like here's my personal time that it's going to eat into if you don't want to do that with me totally fine If you do, I'm going to do it too. I'm not asking anything of you that I'm not also prepared to do. So what I'm doing here is using a visual cue, a kind of simple artistry to bring about a restorative shift to how we have the conversation with each other. And I'm putting decision-making power based on the truth based on what's realistic in the hands of the people I'm serving. So this is working in a secret place to prepare expressions of truth-telling, lament, apology and renewed narratives. Finally, the fourth method happens on the stage, the platforms that we use to inject the right medicine into the system. This method is to work now collectively cross-sector, across the whole organisation, across the whole system, to perform in multiple ways renewed narratives across micro, meso and macro platforms. So we map out and discern where do we have the most entry-level freedom to communicate renewed narratives and to demonstrate them strategically and we start to... Put these methods and processes into place. So an example that came to mind for me to illustrate how injecting a new mindset and associated behavioral and structural change has to happen across those three levels, micro, meso and macro, is uh, that I was working in a high school for a time and one of the projects that I was involved with was setting up a reconciliation action plan and uh, some new uh, Indigenous history and cultural education programs into the system. So, this is a change process that a lot of organizations are starting to engage with. And so, it had to happen at that micro, meso, and macro level. So, starting with micro, which is where we began with this podcast, which is about starting with individual work to understand the individual experiences in the system, Uh, the first thing I did was meet with elders from the area that we were in and to listen, basically, and learn and start to build relationships. Uh, There's no point having a reconciliation action plan or a lesson plan about Indigenous history if we haven't understood anything relationally about the experience of indigenous people in our area right now, or if we don't even know who any of those people are. So I listened and actually I learned that there's a lot of pain that is very justified and that is still to be healed. And, uh, I was able to invite a beautiful woman, an elder, to become involved in the life of the school and connect with the students and staff, which I became so aware was so generous of her because there's something unfair about how the marginalised and oppressed communities have to learn to educate the oppressor or the oppressive structure that they're sitting in and so to go on that journey has to begin with relationship so i met with the elders then one of the projects we did was at the meso level so the classroom level so we worked with the early learning center which is four and five year old children in this beautiful creative way that their teacher came up with, where they used Lego and different artistic mediums to create their own storytelling of how the land and the shape of society and the experience of society changed uh, because of the experience of colonization. And they did this kind of pictorially and we filmed it. We filmed this piece that the children created, which just symbolically showed the impact of colonisation on the environment and the people at the level that they could understand and engage with at their age. And then uh, we hosted a full school assembly, which parents were invited to and staff attended and and the senior school as well, and we platformed this piece that the Early Learning Centre students had created as part of the presentation. So integrating the presence of an elder who we are now building a relationship with, listening to her story, integrating a meso-level project, uh, which is starting to shift the narrative, for example, that we can't really educate and talk about the nature of and the ugliness of our history uh, with young people. Yes, we can. And we can do it in age-appropriate ways, and the sooner we do it, the better and they understand better than we think they might. And also the importance of platforming symbolic change by just who we have on the stage, who gets to hold the microphone. And I remember for this assembly, we put um, these large letters that spelt just the word sorry, white letters against a black background right across the stage and covered the stage in candles. And so the whole assembly began with this tone of lament, which was emotional. It was deeper than cognitive. It was deeper than words and using these strategies to engage the emotion of the room is critical to changing collective mindsets. So we will now move into a time of reflection as we always do at the conclusion of each week's podcast and I have a third and fourth question as part of this two-part series to offer to you in your time of digesting everything that you've heard and all of the thoughts and reflections that have been stirring in your heart and in your mind as you think about your own practice in systemic renewal. The third question relates to the green room and the work that we do in A Secret Place to prepare expressions of truth-telling, lament, apology and renewed narratives. So what needs to be more transparent in your system? How could you be the first to provide that transparency? Where and when and how might you do that? And lastly, the fourth mode, the stage, is where we work collectively to perform renewed narratives across micro and macro-platforms. So what narrative shift is most needed? How could you kickstart this by telling a story about how this shift has happened for you and how that felt for you? The Academy of Systemic Renewal is based in Melbourne, and so we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay respects to elders past, present and emerging.